0: Let me say a prayer for us, we're going to jump in. You're going to like this topic tonight. It's probably engender a few questions, I suspect. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thanks for bringing us here. We're grateful that we can gather and study your word. Pray that you'd help us to reason together, that we might learn more about who you are and your purposes in this world and how we fit in those purposes so that we can apply it to our lives. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, there's a number for questions. It's also on your handout, so text in your questions to that number during class. We'll answer as many of those as we can. I want to remind you what we're doing. We are studying the book of 1 Peter, which, by the way, before I get into this, let's talk for a second about the New Testament. Uh, The New Testament basically is composed of a, a group of writings. We call them books. That's a little bit of a misnomer. The first four... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are records of some of the things that Jesus did in his life. They're different perspectives on some of the events in Jesus' life to try to tell you who he was, what he did, and it's not exactly history the way we understand history because they're not actually trying to do a minute-by-minute, day-by-day thing, but they're trying to tell you about Jesus Christ. Those are the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. After that, you get the book of Acts. We call it a book, but it really is a bit of a history book. It's literally history the way the ancient Greeks wrote history. And so it gives you the story of the early church. So from after the resurrection, how did the church begin to grow and thrive? It's called the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Early Christians, basically. Then you get into a whole string of letters, These are just letters. First Peter is one of two letters that we have that Peter wrote to churches. And so they're just numbered and labeled in that way, but it's actually a letter. Dear so-and-so, this is Peter. Uh, God wants me to tell you some things about how to live the Christian life. And then finally at the very end, the book of Revelation is a very long letter, and it's apocalyptic literature. It's very prophetic. But that's what the New Testament is composed of, and we're looking at this one letter specifically that Peter wrote to a group of churches near the end of his life. So let me uh, take a second and let's just trace kind of where we are with Peter here for a moment. But basically, if you remember, Peter, his story starts with the cross in about 33 AD. Jesus is crucified, raised from the dead. He began to preach in this area for a few years in what's called Israel today or Palestine at that time. But we know that later he must have come up here to Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Those names are what the Romans called them, those provinces or states, if you will. But that's the modern area of Turkey. And then we know near the end of his life he made his way to Rome because it's there under the emperor Nero that he... Is killed by being crucified upside down. And so that's kind of Peter's ministry in a nutshell. He begins it about 33 AD here and he ends his life about 67 AD in Rome. And the interesting thing we've talked about in this is looking at his life and then seeing where he wrote this letter really close to this part of his life, very near the end, But basically, Peter begins his life with a cross where he fails the test of faith. And he ends his life with a cross where he passes the test of faith, where he's willing to die for what he believes. And that's kind of Peter's story, and that's what we've been looking at, Peter's life. So let me catch you up where we are. In the second chapter of this letter, Peter talks about who we are and what God is doing. And here's the short version. He says, God has invaded our world, if you will, because this world is ruled by Satan, by evil, and we are all bound to him by our sin. Jesus Christ came, and by being raised from the dead, he overcame death. He overcame evil. He overcame sin for all who put their trust in him. And so the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the people who follow Jesus Christ, we call it the church begin to invade this world. Peter says, we're chosen. He said, we're a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy people. We've been plucked out for God's purpose. He said, in fact, if you want to think about it this way, you are spiritual stones that God is building into a spiritual temple so that we can be about his business in this world. So that is who we are. Peter says, this is who we are. So he then turns the discussion, and this is where we are in our lesson today, and he says, given that that's who we are, how then do we as Christ's followers relate to the social structures in the societies and in the times in which we live? I mean, it's a fair question. Christians have lived in all kinds of societal structures, all kinds of government structures throughout all of time. And some of the early Christians said, we should ignore it. We belong to the kingdom of God. We're citizens of God's kingdom. That's true. We're, not, we're just temporary residents of this world. So we don't have anything to do with the world. We'll just withdraw. We don't have anything to do with the societies or the governments or the uh, social structures of the world in which we live. But Jesus has given us a mission. He said, I want you to go into all the world. I want you to make disciples of all the people. I want you to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the truth of this is we don't adopt the societal values of the places and the times in which we live, but our mission requires us to interact with the societies in which we live. Whether in Peter's time it was a very patriarchal society and it was a very totalitarian government. The Roman Empire was defines totalitarian government. Whereas in America, 21st century, we live in a much more feminist influenced culture and we live in a democratic government system. So, we're interacting in different societal structures, but we're all called by our mission to, in some way, interact. We don't adopt societal values, we're children of God, but we interact with it. And that's what Peter wants to talk about. Last time, we ended by he's going to talk about three different things to give us this principle. The first is governments. And if you remember, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Now, that's not the only thing the Bible says about it, but I just want to highlight one thing. He says, for the Lord's sake. In other words, he doesn't say submit to the good governments. He doesn't say uh, submit to governments because they're all really good and they're efficient and there's no corruption. He says the reason you do that is because God gave you a mission in the world and he said, and by the way, I want you to be good citizens of whatever society you're a part of. So the first thing he says, he gives us this idea of subject ourselves, submit ourselves for the Lord's sake because of the mission he's given us to, uh, to the governments in which we live. So that's the first thing he's going to do. The next two we're going to focus on in this lesson. They finish up and they move into chapter 3. He's going to talk about two major social institutions of his time. One was slavery and the other is marriage. Two observations. Number one, why does he pick those things? A couple of reasons. Because if you think about it, say you're a slave in that culture and you realize Jesus Christ set me free. I don't think I'm a slave anymore. I, I'm not your citizen. I'm not for you. I'm a Christ. I'm just walking off the job. I'm not going to be a slave anymore. We don't buy into that. Others were marriages. And there were strict. we will talk about this when we get into it. He said, basically, I'm married to somebody who's not a Christ follower. Maybe I should leave them. Maybe I should go on and follow the church and leave them behind. In other words, how, as Christ followers, are we called to interact with those societal structures? So he picks some of the hardest ones to answer that question. Citizens in a government, slavery, an oppressive institution, and then third... Husbands and wives, how do we interact with that societal structure? So he's going to pick those three because they're difficult. The other reason I think he picks those three is he's going to pick the classes of people that are the most vulnerable. Because the truth is, Christ followers throughout all of history, throughout all different kinds of governments, throughout all different kinds of societies, have always been vulnerable. Think about what Jesus said. He said, look, I've overcome this world. You have eternal life. God wins this battle. He said, but I want to be straight with you. In this life, you're going to have some trouble. He said, they hated me, they'll hate you. He said, they persecuted me, some of you will be persecuted. And so we have typically been vulnerable in the world because we have an enemy who, as Peter said, wars against our soul. So I think that's why he picks those categories. So let's jump in there, and I want to analyze those two passages. We'll start first with slaves. He says this, Slaves, submit yourselves or subject yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only those who are good masters and considerate, but also to those who are harsh For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. For this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So let me make a couple of observations and then I know there are a couple of questions that'll be on your mind. And the first observation I would make is this. I wanna talk about this idea of slaves. Who were these slaves? What's this about? We have a 21st century image of slavery and I want you to understand that this is different. It's not better, it's not worse, it's different. This word for slaves, there are several words for slaves which I'll tell you something in that language. Slavery was a widespread practice in ancient times. It had nothing to do with your race or your skin color. You could be conquered and sold into slavery. You could be born into slavery. You could go into debt and literally be forced into slavery. It it did not know socioeconomic class necessarily, but usually poorer people or conquered people, but if you were Uh, the mayor of a conquered town, you could find yourself and your family slaves as soon as you were conquered. So slavery was very widespread, but it wasn't racial. It also wasn't based on education. A lot of slaves, this word happens to be talking specifically about household slaves. So it's not servants, it's not hired help, it's not the nanny, slaves. But many of them were well educated. For example, a lot of doctors were slaves in that time. They would be conquered people, they had the learning, they brought them, they were a slave and they were a doctor. Or the accountant, or the person who ran your household, or the kitchen maid, or the, the guy who cut the yard. You know, these slaves could do a lot of different things, but they could also be very well educated people. But it was widespread. So we don't wanna use our paradigm of slavery and impose it on this. If anything, slavery was far more institutionalized in the ancient world and far more prevalent than it's ever been in our memory. So slaves, we just need to remember, this was a widespread, uh, very widespread practice. So let me ask two obvious questions. This basically says, slaves, I want you to submit yourselves to your masters. This is probably jarring to us, maybe even more so than what he just said, and that is citizens, submit yourselves to earthly authorities. Well, that causes a little heartburn. This probably gets us, you know, into Prilosec territory here. You know, like, whoa. You know, what, really, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. And here's the question that comes up. Does the New Testament then condone slavery? Does the New Testament condone slavery? Well, clearly, it does not condone, it doesn't say this, slaves, Slavery is a really bad thing. Everybody go find a sword and rebel. It doesn't say that, does it? But it doesn't actually condone slavery. Let me give you an example. This is from 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul's talking about the same thing. He's also, by the way, going to repeat this. He's going to say, slaves, you need to submit yourselves to your man. It says the same thing that Peter says. Exactly the same thing. But look at this passage. It's pretty instructive. He said, each one should remain in the situation in which he was in when God called him. You see what he's doing? He's addressing the same thing Peter is. Early Christians said, do any of my social things matter anymore? If I'm a slave, am I still a slave? If I'm a carpenter, do I still work as a carpenter? Or do I go hit the road and become a missionary? Paul says, no, look, stay in the same situation in which you were when you were called. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you although if you can gain your freedom, do so." He says, "...for he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is now free in Christ. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is now Christ's slave." In other words, there's no slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile, when it comes to salvation and our ability to enter the kingdom of God. There's no difference between the master and the slave. We all become literally slaves of Jesus Christ. We belong to him, willingly belong to him. So that's what he's saying. He says, you were bought at a price, do not become slaves of men. Each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Now some people read this and say, oh, does that mean you should never better yourself? That's not his point. What is his point? New believers say, well, what do I do about my job? What do I do about my wife? What do I do about my slaves? What you know, how, does what has it change? Paul says, no this is not what this is about. You just stay what you're doing. We actually have a bigger, different mission. So it's pretty clear when you look at the context of the New Testament, that it doesn't condone slavery. But it also doesn't say, by the way, we should rebel against this. We should have a revolution. It it almost says, this is not the main point. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Now, has the New Testament or the Bible, actually more Old Testament passages, been used in America to justify slavery? Sure. The Bible's been used to justify a lot of things that were wrong. Does that mean that that's the case? Of course it's not. People have done evil things in the name of the Bible. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does not teach that, oh, slavery's a good thing. It says, if you can get your freedom, by all means do so. He said, and you were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of men. And in fact, what you see historically, and this is not my main point tonight, but I just simply want to point out historically, when you see slavery beginning to disappear from particularly Western civilization, because slavery still exists in the world today. Slavery still exists in this country today. I mean, if you stop and think about it, there is a real problem with people being abducted into uh, sex trade. That happens in this country. That's slavery. Well we're opposed to that. We're working, actually this church is part of an effort to get rid of that because what you see happening is the New Testament calls us and you'll see why in a little bit to address those kinds of things that are unjust. We're slaves of Jesus Christ. We're not made to be slaves of each other. So no, the New Testament does not condone slavery but Your next question then is, well, then why doesn't the New Testament speak about it more? If it's a social evil, and it most certainly is, it's one of many, unfortunately, social evils, why then doesn't the New Testament speak more about it? Why does it say, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters? You know, look at Christ's example of submitting himself. Here's why. And this is an important point, so we'll spend a, just a moment on it. Tom Schreiner says it this way and he says it well. He says, the New Testament writers were not social revolutionaries. They did not believe that overhauling social structures would transform the culture. And stop and think about the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission about? Did it say, go and fix all the injustices in the world? No, that will happen but that wasn't the Great Commission. Go and make all the governments really good governments. That's not what it said. He said they really did not believe, nor did Jesus tell us to go overhaul the social structures as a way to transform culture. Their concern was the relationship of individuals to God and they focused on sin and the rebellion of individuals against their creator. That is absolutely true. So does the New Testament condone slavery? No. Why doesn't it talk about it more? Because that's not what it wants to say. That's not what it's about. Let me give you an example. So you walk into the doctor's office and she begins to examine you and you say, I'm here because I have a lot of congestion in my chest and I've got a cough and I don't know if it's bronchitis or whatever. And so she begins to examine you and listen to your chest and you know, take some blood and, and do all these tests. And in the middle of this, your doctor realizes you have almost 100% blockage in all of your coronary arteries. And she goes, sit down right now. She said, we need to deal with this right away. In fact, there's an ambulance coming, you'll be in surgery in an hour and you go, what about my bronchitis? And she says, your bronchitis is a problem, and we will get to that, but this will kill you. Do you see what the New This is exactly what the New Testament is doing. It says, you know what? Slavery is evil. You have a lot of problems in a fallen world, but sin will kill you. Jesus said, I don't like slavery. I'm here to help poor people. I'm here to do a lot of things, but you know what? This sin problem, this terminal disease called rebellion against God, that will kill you. And I, Jesus Christ, he says, I am the only sacrifice that can heal this. So the New Testament, we need to let it be what it wants to be and let it say what it wants to say. The New Testament is here primarily to cure a terminal sin problem. It does not mean that your bronchitis isn't important. It just means this cardiac problem is going to kill you. And so we're going to focus on that. So that's not a perfect metaphor, but I hope it helps a little bit to understand why does the New Testament not speak more about that particular issue? Now, why does it say what it says about it? You know, it says basically, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. And here's a really interesting uh, reason. You get the rationale behind it. Why is this saying it? Basically, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example you should follow in his footsteps. What that means is we need to be willing to suffer to further the mission that God has given us. We say, no, I'm sorry, God, we'd really like to take the good news to the world. We'd really like to get eternal life to everybody but we got to take care of this slavery problem here before we can do it. God says, no, actually, son, you you have that backwards. They're dying people who are doomed. I need you to do that even if you need to suffer for a while. And he said, and I'm going to tell you why, because Christ suffered for you. In other words, God doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't gone before. In fact, think about what you know about the early disciples. Let's go back to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5... Peter and John begin to preach, and they get called in before the Jewish authorities. Now, Jewish authorities say, you need to quit preaching this Jesus like he's raised from the dead. They go, you're going to have to be our own judge on that. Do I obey you or do I obey God? Easy answer, we're going to keep preaching. And they said, we're going to kill you guys. And they go, eh, we better not. They make them martyrs. So instead, they just beat the tar out of them. Right? They just beat them and let them go. And you know what Peter and John did? This is really good. Acts chapter 5, I think about verse 41. They went away rejoicing because they'd been considered worthy to suffer for the name. To suffer for the name of Christ. In other words, Peter, the failure of faith, said, that's not happening to me again. He said, you know what? Guys, think about what's happened. Jesus suffered immeasurably under a weight of sin for us. We've been considered worthy to suffer a little bit for him. They rejoiced at that. Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul, he's out killing Christians like crazy. Jesus comes and says, hey, Paul, you know who I am? Paul goes, "Uh uh-oh. And so he has this conversion. That's not exactly the way it goes, but it's kind of like that. So he has this conversion experience. He goes blind. He gets led into Damascus, Syria. And so he's sitting there thinking about, you know, what he's done. God goes to a guy, a Christian in the town. He says, hey, I want you to go over to Paul and uh, just lay your hands on him. He's gonna get his sight back. I think you'll see an attitude change, you know, on Paul's part here. He says, and listen to what he says, I need you to let him know how much he must suffer for my name. I didn't say that punitive. It's not like, hey, I'm gonna get you back. He said, I've got a job for you. I got a mission. I need you to understand There's gonna be some hard times here, but this is the mission. That's the image you get in this case of slavery, but we're gonna see in our next lesson, all of us, we're not slaves, but we all have some suffering and difficulty. And Peter picks the worst case example and says, if I can explain to you why you might need to suffer slavery to be about God's mission, I think you'll understand why you need to suffer a lot of other difficulties in your life. that makes sense? That's the essence of what he's trying to say here. Sum it up. Slavery, make this one observation, we're going to talk about marriage next. God instituted marriage, man instituted slavery. The New Testament doesn't condone slavery, but the New Testament sees something bigger than our social ills, and that is curing what will really kill you. So let me pause there, see if you have any questions about that before we move on to a uh, completely unrelated topic. No connection whatsoever between marriage and slavery. So, questions?
1: Um, A kind of a general question to start with. How did the letters get delivered? Didn't have the postal service.
0: Yes, well the internet of course. Email, early email. No, how did the letters get delivered? Actually, you, you'll read at the end of some of these letters and at the beginning that he actually tells you, I've sent this letter with one of the faithful servants and he's bringing it to you. And they would actually travel to these areas and deliver letters to maybe two or three congregations. So it was hand-delivered typically for the Christians. Now did the Romans have a mail service? Yes they did. Could the Christians use it? No they couldn't. So they typically sent it with people who would go visit, tell them how what Paul was up to, do some teaching, find out how everybody's there. Here's a letter from Paul. And by the way, first thing they would do with that letter is they'd Xerox it. So that they could send it on to the town next to them. They shared these letters. So for example, 1 Peter, if you just look at the first verses, he said, I'm writing to the churches in, and he starts listing off these areas, Galatia, Cappadocia. There are tons of churches in that area. His point is, I want everybody to read this letter. So you guys copy it, send a copy down. They'll copy it, send a copy along. So typically hand delivered, hand copied and spread around. In fact, the New Testament, okay, I'm getting revved up, but this is really interesting. So the New Testament, by the way, You think about most ancient documents, you only have two or three copies, and they're usually partial copies, You know, and you piece together the text. But the New Testament, you have like 21,000 partial copies of these letters. I mean, they just copied them like crazy, preserved them as Scripture. This was Scripture. These are the words of God, the Holy Spirit speaking through God's servants. So they preserved it. Yeah, like 21,000 fragmentary copies of this. So they copied them, they kept them, they revered them.
1: Why doesn't the New Testament define slavery as sin? Uh, it would have been countercultural, but that seems fairly normal for Christians then and today.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, let's talk about why doesn't the New Testament define slavery as sin? In other words, why didn't just use that? Hey, it's, sla- it's a sin to uh, have slaves. There are actually, you could ask that question about a thousand other things. Why doesn't the New Testament say this is sin? Why doesn't it say that is sin? It's not the point. In other words, you couldn't probably categorize everything. For example, is it going to say, by the way, internet porn is sin? Well, no, not likely. You know, this is 2,000 years worth. There's an awful lot of ways to sin. We're pretty creative at finding sin. So the scripture is going to talk about sin fundamentally. There are a lot of ways to think about it, and it kind of gives you different prisms. But basically, you're following Christ, and you submit yourself to Him, or you are basically following your own desires in the world. And so now we start to talk about specific sins. The Bible lists a few, but it's really not just a list of, here's the bad stuff, here's the good stuff. It gives us enough to have an example, but there's no way you can list every way that humanity can figure out how to sin. So while we're talking about this, we go, boy, I wish you would have just said slavery is a sin. But when we talk about the next topic, we go, oh, by the way, I wish you would have just said internet porn was a sin. Oh, by the way, I wish you would have said cheating on your taxes is a sin. In other words, it's not really practical. The Bible talks a lot about sin, but it's you can understand how it would be impossible to just name everything that's a sin. Because you know what I would do in that case? Oh, I found something that's not on the list. Must be okay. The Bible takes a more mature view of sin than that. But yes, sometimes I think that too. I go, boy, I wish you just said that. That could have saved some heartache. But the idea is, God says... I can't get bogged down in that. I said, you know what sin is. I want you to be about this mission. Good question.
1: Uh, In the King James, in this passage, the word is servant and not slave. Strong says that that means household servant. Can you explain the difference?
0: Yes. Servant is not a good translation for 21st century America. In 1611 AD, that meant slave. In 2017 in America, servant means your server at the restaurant who gets paid and you tip. In other words, servant doesn't reflect the meaning of the word. There are several words for slave. This one specifically means household slaves. It's not restricting it to household slaves, but that's who he's mainly talking to. Think about it. You become a Christian, you're a household slave, and you've just been told that you are free in Christ. You are reconciled to God. You are free. You have eternal life with God. It'd be easy to go, oh, well, you know what? I don't work for you anymore. Don't belong to you anymore. Belong to Jesus Christ. I'll see you later. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You have a mission in this world. Here's how I want you to interact with the social structure. Slaves, submit yourselves willingly to your master. Why? Because you know what? That's gonna further God's mission in the world. So the word slave is a better translation because that's what it means. In 1611 when the King James was translated, servant was a great translation for that. So this is a great way to tell you what that word actually means. These people were not free. They didn't go home at night. They were slaves that could be bought, they could be sold, they could be beaten, they could be killed. It was considered poor taste to kill your slaves for no reason, but it wasn't against the law. So slaves probably captures that a lot better for us. It's a good translation.
1: How could someone avoid interpreting the call to suffer in Jesus' name as staying potentially in abusive situations? How do you rectify rejoicing because suffering makes you more like Christ? And can you talk about the contradictions in these passages?
0: Yes. Uh, First of all, I don't really see a contradiction there. I think let's let's just reason about this. First of all, think about the other passage that I showed you. Paul said you know what, slave, you're not gonna run away from your master. But if you could get your freedom, do so. In other words, it doesn't condone that. Now let's take this to an extreme case because usually people go to the extremes. They go, all right, so you got a husband, you got a wife, and the wife's in an abusive relationship. Does this mean, oh, just submit yourself to that suffering? Of course it does not mean that. It's like, if you need to get out of that relationship, get out of that relationship. Here's the problem with slavery, where do you go? In other words, you can't solve that problem here. In other words, even if Paul had said, slaves, if your master beats you, run away. You know what they're going to do if you run away? They're going to track you down and they're going to kill you. Publicly, crucified, as basically an example to all the other slaves. We need to think about this a little bit. Even if Paul or Peter had said, hey, if they beat you, oh, deal's off, you're out of here. It doesn't matter. He can't cure that. In other words, they're going to kill you then. Fast forward to 2017. You're in an abusive relationship. You can leave and you should. You should get help in that situation. So I really just don't see those as the same way. We just need to think about that in a little more reasonable way. I don't see a contradiction there at all. It's just pragmatic. Being said, by the way, you should leave and they'll track you down and they'll kill you.
1: I think the question here has to do with a call to suffering because suffering makes you more like Christ.
0: Yes, we're going to talk about I'm going to defer that just a little bit because the next lesson is all about suffering for Christ and what it means to suffer for Christ and what circumstances you suffer for Christ. So I'm not trying to dodge that. It'll be well talked about in the context of those passages, probably better than in the context of this, but it's a good question, and we'll address that. Okay. So, next, wives, in the same way, uh, NIV says, be submissive to your husbands. You couldn't pick a more offensive phrase for 21st century America. Let me try to make it a little better. I said, Laura, what's less offensive than be submissive to? She said, subject yourself, which is a great translation. The English Standard Version uses that translation. Subject yourself to your husbands so that if any of them do not obey the word, that's another bad translation, they do not obey the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. So let me make a couple of observations about this because I want us to have an informed discussion about it. First of all, you see this idea in the same way. Slaves, submit yourself to your masters for God's purposes. In other words, not whether your master deserves it or is good. The reason for this command is, Jesus set you an example, follow that example. This is how we're going to further God's work in the world. In the same way, similarly, wives, be subject, subject yourselves, actually I'm gonna talk about that in a second, to your husbands because, and here's the problem, a lot of people had unbelieving spouses one would accept christ the other would not and their obvious question was well can i just leave because they won't go to church with me and it's even worse than it sounds i'll tell you in just a minute more about the women they don't address the husbands because the husbands are like well i'm a christian so my wife's going to be a christian i'll show you in just a second but the wives it's like hey i'm kind of torn here what do you want me to do should i just leave him and just you know go into the kingdom of god he says no i want you to subject yourself to your husband and follow the cultural convention of the time. Why? That if they don't believe the word, they may be won over. In other words, they've got a cardiac blockage that's going to kill them. You need to tell them about what it's going to be to make them alive. In other words, if you care anything about them, you better tell them, you better show them that this is the way to life. So it's fulfilling that purpose. The second thing is this idea of subject yourselves to, be submissive to. This is a very specific word that's used here. It's used, uh, for example, in Ephesians chapter five, Paul says, children obey your parents. That's not this word. That is obey your parents. This word means subject yourself to this. It's sort of like this, Uh, this poor example, but I want you to get the idea of the voluntary nature. This is all voluntary. Obey, that's not voluntary. Submit yourself, subject yourself is voluntary. It says you choose to do this. It's like if you want to uh, get a driver's license in our culture, I think I've used this before, you are going to subject yourself to extreme frustration, right? I mean, you're going to go wait in line. You're going to do this. You You can say, well, I'm not getting a driver's license. Okay, don't get a driver's license. But guess what? You can't drive a car. But if you want to drive a car, you're going to submit yourself, subject yourself to the rules of that game. Whether you think they're right, they're wrong, they could be done better, they could not be done better, you know, I don't agree with this. Well, that's the way this is played. This is kind of like that. God says, look, if you want to be about my business in the world, because I'm really concerned about saving lives eternally, then I need you to voluntarily subject yourself to this structure. Does that make sense? This idea is it's very intentional wording about subjecting yourself intentionally. We all do it every day. So I'm not trying to take the point of this away. I'm simply trying to put it in a proper perspective. Let me make one side note because this has really been abused. You, you combine this with a patriarchal power structure and you basically can come out and say, the Bible supports a patriarchal societal structure. It most certainly does not support a patriarchal structure. It doesn't support a feminist structure. It basically supports fulfilling God's mission in the world. And in that culture, in that time, and Paul's gonna argue in every culture and every time, it's a powerful witness to voluntarily set your wishes aside and serve others, not just husbands and wives, Paul in Ephesians 5 is going to say, submit yourselves to one another. He's going to say, love your neighbor as yourself. Think more highly of others than yourself. You see a principle here of, it's not about me. God, what what moves your purposes forward? And he says, wives, I need you to voluntarily subject yourselves to your husbands. So that if any of them do not obey the word, you might win them. They might live and not die eternally because of this. But nowhere... In this do you find any injunction to husbands to make sure your wife is doing this? You see what I'm saying? This is how you take something that God is pure and good, and he says, this is part of what I'm calling you to do, and you twist it. You combine it with a patriarchal societal structure. Oh, fine. Sometimes we live in those structures. Sometimes we live in a totalitarian structure. Whatever the structure is, we're still about God's work. But you take that and you put this with it and say, God loves patriarchal power structure. That's not true. God wants husbands to beat their wives over the head with this passage and say, hey, you're supposed to subject yourself to me. When men do what God's about to tell the husbands to do, then you can talk to your wife about that. But I want to make that really clear is this is not about particular societal structure. This is all about pursuing what God wants. Next thing, this is not about the idea of equality. That's not what this passage is talking about. In fact, the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, teaches the idea that men and women are equal before God. Men and women are both created in the image of God. Men and women are co-heirs together. We'll see that in a few minutes of eternal life. Paul says there's no slave, Free, Jew, Gentile, male, female, what does he mean? He means everybody can be saved. That is way countercultural, way countercultural for that time. the jew I mean Jewish idea of that is a little different than the Christian idea. The pagan idea of that is radically different. This is very countercultural, but for the opposite reasons that we think. In other words, right now we read that and we go, whoa, that's kind of countercultural because We not only think men and women are equal, but the ideology of our culture says they are the same. God says men and women are equal, but they are not the same. You wouldn't think we'd need somebody to point that out to us. But we are indeed equal. So this offends us on the idea of sameness. It offended them for the exact opposite reason by saying men and women are equal. They did not believe that to be true. They thought that women were inferior. The New Testament does not, and Jesus got in tons of trouble for that. In fact, I think I put this on your handout, but I want to show you just the way that society thought about it. Plutarch, a really famous uh, guy, wrote a lot of stuff, have a lot of it left, and he, uh, you can see, lived right during the first century. But this is how they thought. A wife should not acquire her own friends, should make her husband friends her own. The gods of the first and most significant of friends for this reason. Wives should recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and shut the door on superstitious cults and strange superstitions. What's he saying? He said women were expected to worship the gods of their husbands. Now think about what Peter is saying. Wife married to a husband, he's worshiping all these pagan Roman gods or Greek gods or Persian gods or whomever gods, she becomes a Christ follower, he says this, and this just ticked them off to no end. He said, of course you're not going to accept his gods. Those are idols. Well, great, sounds good to me, I'm leaving. He goes, no, 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 you don't understand. You're not going to accept his gods, but you're going to subject yourself to him. In other words, you're going to stay married to him. You're still going to be a good wife because you know what? He's going to probably be won over to what you believe. This was hugely subversive. This was, I mean, he isn't saying leave your husband. He's saying stay, but you're not going to worship those gods. And by your godly demeanor, you're going to be a powerful witness for him. That was hugely countercultural at that time. So, same then and now. This is offensive. But it was, it's just funny to me, it's offensive for exactly the opposite reason. And that's going to just be the way when cultures go. We are not called to conform to the societal norms, but we're going to interact. And usually around these issues, we're going to interact in a subversive, kind of countercultural way. The idea that men and women are equal offended them. Unfortunately, today, the idea that men and women are not the same, they're not identical, offends some of our culture. Paul... Peter then goes on, this is a pretty passage, that's the reason I put this in here, to explain a little bit of the biblical idea of woman. He said, your beauty does not come from your outward adornment. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, because that's where God is working. God is working on the eternal beauty of who we are. We become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He said, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight, this is the way the holy women of the past put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They subjected themselves to their own husbands. You are daughters if you do this as well. Notice what they did. They basically did this because they put their hope in God. It doesn't say they submitted to their husbands because that's what the patriarchal culture demanded. It doesn't say they submitted to their husbands because they were great husbands. It said they loved God and for the, for the Lord's sake, they did this. Exactly what he told the slaves, isn't it? Submit yourselves to your masters for God's sake, not theirs. That's why Christians can have good marriages. Christians can work through these things because it's not all on each other. We love one another even in the hard times for the Lord's sake, even when I don't deserve to be loved. That's the the image that's being painted here and that's kind of the idea. We need to be careful to separate cultural roles from God's mission. And here's what I mean by that. A cultural role would be men mow the yard, women do the laundry. That's not a New Testament thing. That's a cultural role. You understand what I'm saying? What is God's role? God says, I want you to subject yourself to structures to, to make the kingdom move forward. We decided. That men had to mow the yard and women had to do this. That in relationships, there has to be some kind of patriarchal deal. You know, maybe your wife better at mowing the yard. I've been trying to get Laura to mow the yard for years. I think she's better. But seriously, for example, she's better at a lot of things than I am that we would call traditional male roles. Well, then she does that in our relationship. And I might be better at other things. In other words, we are a couple. We don't, we're not called to conform to cultural roles because they're cultural roles. We're called to be about God's mission. And in this case, God's saying, my mission is furthered by you laying down some of your rights and subjecting yourselves to the government, to your masters, in this case, to your husband. I, I, don't, I want you to understand the principle here. What is the Bible, why is the Bible saying what it's saying about this? It's an important idea. Then finally, you're like, okay, well, are husbands in this at all? Uh, Husbands in the same way, Paul, by the way, in Ephesians chapter 5, has way more in-your-face things to say to husbands. But listen to this. This is radically countercultural. I know it doesn't sound that way to you. You go, well, this is normal. This was not normal then. Husbands, in the same way, in other words, same principle for everybody, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with, that word is literally, Honor as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. What's this saying? First of all, it's radical that a husband ought to be considerate of his wife. I mean, your wife was kind of your property. She was a lower class citizen. That's true in every culture. Some were better than others, but they were all like that. New Testament says, no, that's not the way we do it. I want you to be considerate of your wife, I want you to give her honor. I want you to live for her with knowledge. I want you to care about her and her needs and her desires. In other words, it's not all about you. You're going to subject your desires to something more important. And so today you read that and you go, well, doesn't everybody do that? No, they don't all do it today. And they definitely didn't do it then. This was very countercultural for the time. Second, I know you're sitting there thinking, hey, what's this about the weaker partner? So I might as well talk about that. First of all, The New Testament teaches that men and women are not inferior, well, obviously equal before God, but that women are not inferior intellectually. Women are not inferior spiritually. Almost every commentator understands this as simply saying, by and large, women were not as physically strong as men. That is not as big a deal to you and me, but it was a big deal in that culture. It said, in other words, your wife is not as strong as you are. Carry the groceries for her. You know, In other words, just saying, look, your wife's not physically as strong as you are. Be considerate. Give her honor. There wasn't a man in the world that would consider carrying the groceries in. But that's what this is saying. Make sense? So you get this idea of a a principle that's running through this, and it is that God has a mission. We don't conform to patriarchal power structures. We don't conform to feminist fads, whatever. Those may be good things, but they're not our main thing. Our main thing is the mission God called us to, and we're gonna interact with every social structure in a way that furthers that mission of finding people who are literally, as Paul says in Ephesians, they're dead, they just don't know it without Jesus Christ, and we have to bring Jesus Christ to them. So Paul calls us to subject ourselves to a lot of social structures in order to further God's mission. And then finally, He ends like this, he said, and in fact, for all the things I didn't cover, he said, I picked the hard ones. I picked the ones that you're gonna most wonder, should I change this? But he said, all of you live in harmony with one another. You know what that takes? That means giving up some of my rights. That means subjecting myself to your needs. It's the same principle. He said, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love each other like brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Hey, now you're causing me to lay down some rights because you know what he did to me? So I think I should smite him. God, you want to smite him right now? You know, He's saying, we're not going to do that. Why don't you just forego that? Why don't you forego vengeance? Why don't you just subject yourself to kindness? He said, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. In other words, we follow Christ's example in this. We submit ourselves Love our neighbor as ourself. So you see the principle. He just happened to pick out the three really tough ones to illustrate that. Okay? Okay, no questions about the wives and husbands? Awesome. Let's get out of Dodge before <laughs> those start coming. But hopefully you get the idea of, of this principle. It's going to be all through the New Testament. And I want you to put these specific examples in that bigger context because God's going to expect us to apply that in a lot of contexts, a lot of contexts with one another. It's always going to be counter-cultural. If the If the culture you live in says, and believe me, this is not our culture. Well, actually it kind of was. I grew up in kind of rural Kentucky, Hatfields and McCoys. You do something to me, I do something to you twice. Feuds, I mean, it's a real thing. People had feuds, Places in the world today where it's, love your friends, hate your enemies. God says, we're not buying into those social structures. What God says is, I want you to lay down your rights, I wanna subject yourself, I want you to forgo vengeance. In other words, God's gonna call us to his mission and at some point, it's gonna conflict with every culture on earth. We just experience it and how it conflicts with 21st century American culture. Well, next we're going to talk about hardship and setbacks. He needed to talk about this first because you can't really understand how do I deal with difficulties and hardships in life without understanding this principle. The Christian view of suffering, and I mean whether that's cancer, whether that's losing a job, whether that's emotional and relational strife, we suffer in a lot of ways. We just don't use that word. But suffering, the Christian view of suffering is absolutely unique. There's not another religion, there's not another ideology that understands uh, that in the same way that Christians do. I think you'll find it kind of eye-opening. So for this week, you better limp along in your suffering because next week we'll give you a different perspective on it. Thanks guys.